We are finishing a series called Elect Exiles, Growing Through First Peter. I hope you've grown. I know I have. Uh, visiting with Peter every week. I thought about inviting him back in this morning to say farewell, but it's going to be a long sermon already, so we decided not to do that. Today's message is, is entitled, Living as God's Flock. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Living as God's flock. You know, God loves sheep and shepherds. He created sheep for his purpose. It's kind of like a mirror for you and me. We look at sheep and we see ourselves because God says, you are the sheep of my hand. You are my flock. I'm the good shepherd. I'm leading you in paths of righteousness. He even made David, the psalmist, a shepherd so he could say, the Lord is my shepherd. And I could say that with him. Sheep are stupid. Shepherds need to be smart in order to help those stupid animals not fall in a hole somewhere. Think of how many shepherds are in the Old Testament. Abel, Cain and Abel. So Abel was a shepherd. That's why his sacrifice pleased God, because God loves flocks and shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. His son Isaac and Esau were shepherds. I mean, Ishmael. Jacob and Esau were shepherds. Then all 12 of Jacob's sons had flocks. That's how they measured their value. And stop for a minute and think about what did the, the flock of Jacob look like? Do you remember what the flock of Jacob looked like? Was it white and fluffy? It wasn't. They were all black and striped and splotched. They were the ugly ones. Wow, that's so encouraging for me. God loves black sheep. He loves lost sheep. He loves dirty sheep that have fallen in a hole somewhere. He goes after his sheep. He loves his sheep and lays down his life for them. So Peter comes to the end, and he's filled, I think, with love for this scattered flock of God across Asia Minor and now across the centuries. And here we are reading his letter. I want to start with the end uh, you know how you, when you're coloring in a coloring book and you color the outline before you fill it in? So there's a, sort of an outline at the very end, starting in verse 12. Uh, and interestingly, I think Peter ended his letter in verse 11. See what verse 11 says? To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then S Silas, who's probably writing this letter for old Peter, says, hey, wait a minute. I wanted to say hello. Could we do a PS? So then verse 12 says, by Silas, or in ESV it says Silvanus, same guy, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Peter's honoring his secretary and likely the messenger too. Silas probably took this letter as he did First and Second Thessalonians and Second Corinthians. He's mentioned in all four of these letters as the secretary slash messenger. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God Stand firm in it, Peter says. Then he says in verse 13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. That's what commentators call an inclusio. So it's like the closing of the parentheses of elect exiles. The church in Babylon, that's Rome. Peter was probably in a prison in Rome. Suzanne and I got to go to the prison that he was likely in. It's a dungeon that was originally a, a, a water source, so they used it for a cistern, but then they would lock people up in there. Uh, they think both Paul and Peter were locked up in Rome in that prison. So here's Peter exiled in Rome, and he's greeting the church around the world from she who is at Babylon, which refers to the bride of Christ. The body of Christ exiled in Babylon greets you. And he says they are likewise chosen, chosen exiles, elect exiles. I hope that's how you have come to see yourself. Chosen by God to walk against the flow of the world and your own flesh, waiting for the better country that God is building for his flock. He mentions Mark. So does Mark, my son, this is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark that abandoned Paul and Barnabas. Remember when it got tough and uh, Paul and Barnabas actually split up over it and Paul went with Silas and Barnabas went with Mark. But later on, Paul calls him useful. And Peter is here calling him uh, his son. 
Mark likely wrote his gospel under Peter's guidance, under Peter's direction. And he commands us all to greet one another with the kiss of love. Uh, the commentators make clear that if a kiss is offensive, it's probably not loving. So you should only kiss someone who receives that as a kiss of holy love and not just go around kissing everyone because the Bible says to. A good way to interpret Scripture in a contextual way. In, in Nepal, where I was a couple weeks ago, you don't even touch. You just hold your hands like this and you say, Jamesy, if you're a Christian, you say Jamesy. If you're not a Christian, you say Namaste. But there's no touching involved in greeting, and that's the way you connect. So here's where I get Peter as a shepherd. He's an older man. Loving God's flock, tending God's flock. And this is what Jesus told him to do, right? Remember in John 21, he asked him three, three times, Peter, do you love me? When Peter says yes, he says, feed my lambs. If you love me, take care of my flock. If you love me, you'll do, my, do what I want you to do. And what I want you to do is tend the flock of God. Care for them, feed them, protect them, watch over them. And out of that spirit... Peter is talking to us in three, uh, three ways, three sections here as we observe the text. Three paragraphs. First, the shepherds among you, then the sheep among you, and then the lion among you. The shepherds among you, the sheep among you, and the lions among you. First, this idea of among. The NIV says, shepherd the, the flock under your care. Now, in the Greek, that's exactly the same preposition. This is the simple word, en, E-N, that it uses when it talks about the flock that is, or the, the flock that is among you. So when, when Peter starts his, his teaching, he says, I exhort the elders among you down below uh, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, we are all sheep. Calvary is going through a process of choosing elders. In fact, very soon you'll have an online form where you can suggest the nomination of a member of Calvary to the board of deacons to be considered as an elder. Those elders are among us. They're here. They're on the list. They're sheep, like you, like me. Elders, as you get chosen, remember that the flock of God is among you. I think it's accurate to, to translate this same preposition in the same way, that the elders are among the sheep, and the sheep are among the elders. And as we move into this message, think about the flock as your home. To be in Christ means to be in the flock of God, which is the church. And that doesn't just mean here on Sunday morning. That means connected with one another, walking with one another. Do you know each other? Do you pray for one another? Do you know how to serve one another? The flock is among us, and the elders are among us. So to the shepherds that are among us, Peter exhorts. First of all, giving his credentials. Peter's credentials are that he was a witness of both Christ's sufferings and his glory. So remember that Peter and John snuck into the, the tribunal where Jesus was being tried, and Peter denied Jesus three times that night that Jesus was crucified. Peter saw Christ's sufferings. Probably he was watching the crucifixion from a distance. Then he says, I've also seen the glory that's going to be revealed. When was that? Remember? Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John get to go up on that mountain and see Jesus in his glory. Before the end, he sees him shining like lightning in front of him. So Peter knows who Jesus is from beginning to end. God has given him this glimpse of the start of the story of redemption on the cross and the end of the story when Jesus is truly God uh, reigning in his glory, shining like the sun. And he's encouraging us because of who Christ is, and he's asking the elders to shepherd the flock. Now, elder in this, uh, this phrase means older. That's all it means, the older people. But likely he's not just talking about physical age, he's talking about spiritual maturity. Those who have walked with God, those who have roots in the scripture, those who have seen their answers, their prayers be answered and know who God is because they've walked with the Lord for some time. 
I was reminded of Christer and Petra Holtz as I was reading about these because Christer uh, became the, the head of the Board of Deacons here for several years when Susanna and I were, were members of Calvary and just appreciated his maturity in the Lord so much. And yet, when you think about his story, he came to faith in Christ rather late in life. He came to Calvary because of trouble in his family and uh, received counseling and then found Christ, found the gospel, was born again as a middle-aged father uh, with a troubled marriage. And the Lord touched them in such a powerful way and he began to do uh, BSF leadership and Petra became the regional leader for Bible Study Fellowship. And relatively quickly, they became what we would call today elders. They were deacons, but they were leading us in maturity, in rootedness in the scripture, just as Peter is exhorting uh, the elders among the flock to do here. The verb he uses is to shepherd. In NIV it says, be a shepherd. But I think here to say shepherd the flock means just what Jesus said to Peter. Feed, tend, care for my sheep. It means, and he, and he gives three ways to do that. Three uh, attitudes that an elder is to have. Without compulsion, but willingly. Without shameful gain, but eagerly. And without domineering, but by being an example. He says, don't let anyone have to force you to do this. No one needs to compel you. Do it willingly. Do it eagerly. Not for what you're going to get out of it. And that doesn't mean just money. It means uh, reputation. It means... Uh, kudos and affirmation. That's not why you serve God's flock as an elder. But you do it eagerly in obedience to what the Lord has commanded you to do and gifted you with. And then finally, be an example. Do what you're telling other people to do. General George Patton is a good example of that as a leader. Remember who he was, that crazy general in uh, Europe, without whom the Allies would likely have not won the war against the Nazis. But they say he slept in a sleeping bag on the ground when he was at battle because his philosophy was do everything you ask of those you command. No good decision was ever made in a swivel chair. So elders, you don't make decisions from swivel chairs. You walk with the sheep. You stay with people. You serve people. You listen before you speak and decide so that as a good shepherd, you lay down your agenda, your life, and like Christ did, you come to serve and not to be served. And Peter ends by saying, when you do this, after you have suffered these, uh, this humble service, you'll be given an unfading crown of glory. That's in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the same as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians, that athletes run and discipline themselves to win a fading crown. But we discipline ourselves because our crown will never fade. The glory that we will share with Jesus, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. The shepherds among us. There's a theme in First Peter all the way through that we've seen, and that is that faithfulness in unjust suffering, because we are mindful of God's sovereignty brings a hope of the coming glory in Christ. We increase in hope as we suffer with Christ, as Christ did, not because of what we did wrong, but as we do right, then we still suffer. But then he talks about the sheep among you. And NIV uses the word younger men. The idea here is all of you who are younger, anyone who's not an elder, the sheep of the flock, what does Peter say to the sheep of the flock? It says, likewise, be subject to the elders. Let's just read verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, this is in the English Standard Version, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, that's including the elders, actually, as members of the flock, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. 
I thought about that word likewise this week, and I think there's two reasons that Peter includes likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Number one, all through chapter two, he's talking about Jesus suffering silently and unjustly. Just like Jesus suffered, he's called you to follow in his steps, and when you suffer unjustly, keep your mouth shut. Be conscious of God. Give your case to the one who judges fairly. Follow Jesus in that. So he's saying, like a slave submits to his master, like a wife submits to her husband, and like all followers of Jesus submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, likewise, you who are members of the flock, be subject to your elders. But there's another reason for the likewise here, I think, and it refers back to how the elders should lead. So Peter has just said, shepherd the flock under your care, without compulsion, but willingly, without shameful gain, without seeking shameful gain, but eagerly, and without domineering, but being an example. I think Peter's referring to that same method for followers. Don't make the elders force you to subject. Not under compulsion. Do it willingly. Obey willingly. Follow willingly. Don't do it for what you're going to get out of it. See, the elders may ask us to do something that costs us more than it gives us. And doing, following the elders for shameful gain would be, yeah, I don't like this decision because it doesn't do me right. And Peter's saying that's not why you do something. You do it out of reverence for the Lord, eagerly wanting to make the elders your authority in Christ in the flock. And then finally, not, uh, without domineering, without uh, pushing yourself over on anyone, but being an example even for those who follow you. Here's an interesting thought. All sheep grow up to be shepherds. Mothers, if you have children, you're shepherds. You're shepherding your children toward Christ-likeness. Older siblings, you're an example for your younger siblings. Disciple them. Be an example for them. Follow Jesus and then say, follow me as I follow Christ. In a sense, God gives each mature follower of Christ a little flock to lead. Not that you have that position in the church necessarily, but it is our calling as disciples to make disciples, isn't it? So he says, be subject to the elders, and then all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a gift of the Spirit. It's a command. Humble yourself. Get off of your high horse. Stop thinking of yourself as more important than other people. That's something each of us is called to do by the Scripture in our own minds. Humble yourself. Put on a humble mind as Christ put on a towel around his waist and came to serve and not to be served. He who was more important than everybody made himself a servant. And he calls us to do the same. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. See, I, I find that it's pretty easy for me to be humble in my office by myself. But you guys tend to bring out the worst in me. And as soon as I start talking to you, I start thinking of all the ways that I'm, I'm, I might be able to do something better. Well, he has a big executive job, but guess what? I can... That's my fleshly, sinful mind wanting to compare myself with you and find a position instead of humbling myself toward each of, each of you and seeing you as more important than myself. Finding Jesus in you and worshiping, worshiping him through how you express him and serve him and make him known to me. Let's do that as the flock of God. Verses 6 and 7 are very clear. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You see, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to one guy. It all belongs to Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the throne that is over every situation in the world and in the universe. And it all flows down from Him. And so as we humble ourselves, submit to the structure of leadership that's in our life, that flow of authority comes down to us and then we are able to minister that flow in in the sphere that the lord has put us he will lift us up he will give us grace as we humble ourselves 
And he kind of tells us how to do this, casting all your anxieties, all your cares on him, for he cares for you. See, anxiety comes from the the idea that I need to do something about a problem, that I should be capable, uh, and I'm aware that I'm not capable. So in a sense, humbling myself like a sheep is saying, Lord, this problem is too big for me. Lord, life is an unknown risk. I have no idea what will happen tomorrow. And so I'm going to give you that anxiety, trust you with tomorrow, and live in obedient humility today because I'm just your sheep after all. Remember uh, Ruth Oliveira that brought a sheep to church? Everybody that was here that day will never forget the sheep bellowing back there in the back room while we were having silent prayer in the service uh, because sheep know how to bellow. They do that really well. And Ruth's husband, Samuel, who's a a pastor of a church as well as a pastor of sheep, taught me the difference between, one of the differences between goats and sheep. He said, Thomas, goats are really smart. When they fall in a hole, they know how to get out. They know where the food is. They want to do their own thing. They figure it out. They say, leave me alone. I know how to live. Sheep are really dumb. And what they want is to be touching the shepherd's legs. And so with the goats, when he would bring them in from pasture, he'd have to get behind them with a stick and kind of keep hitting them to keep them in line and keep them going in the same direction. With the sheep, he didn't need a stick. He just sang, goes out and starts singing, and the sheep would all come, and they would all want to be the closest one to his legs, and he would just walk up the hill to the fold, and they'd all go in the door because he went in the door with them. And if one fell in a hole, all they would do is yell until someone came to get them out because they don't know how to get out of a hole. That comforts me, and it helps me cast my anxieties on Jesus because I know how to bellow. But I think I can figure it out, too. So sometimes it takes me too long to pray and say, Lord, help me. I'm in a a pickle, or life is hard. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. How are we going to pay the bills? And Peter's saying, humble yourself. Believe that God is sovereign. Believe that suffering is sometimes according to his will. Patiently cast your cares on him. He cares for you. That's the truth. That's the truth. Cast those burdens. Don't carry another step, a burden that is not for you to carry, but for him to carry. And he wants you to trust him and his goodness and his care for you. So we've talked about the shepherds among us. We've talked about the the sheep among us. But there's a lion, isn't there? Peter says, your adversary, the devil, this is verse uh, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, be sober-minded. Don't forget there's an enemy. See, when you get drunk, you're partying. You forgot that the enemy's prowling around, looking for some, looking for a chance to take advantage. If you're sober-minded, you keep your sword with you. If you're not asleep, you're watching. You're watchful for that lion who's prowling around, in a sense, among us. Right? That's not in the text, but I added it to make this three-point message sound better. But I do believe the devil comes to church. Want to have a biblical basis for that? What are the birds in the parable of the sower? Remember the sower where the seed falls in the ground and the birds come and they pick it out. Jesus said it's the demons. It's the devil. The birds are flying around looking to steal the word out of your mind and your heart and your hands to keep you distracted so you don't obey it. By the time you get to lunch, you're going to forget most of what I'm saying. Be watchful. Wake up. Jesus is talking to you. Obey. Not me, his word. Because the devil wants to keep you from obeying, keep you from being transformed, keep you distracted with yourself, with your anxieties, so that you don't become what he wants you to be. There's a, there's a, a, a lion 
He's walking back and forth. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 give us that picture. God says, Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been walking back and forth on the earth looking at people. You just get that idea of a hungry lion pacing back and forth, back and forth, looking for a sheep to devour. And my friends, what kind of sheep do lions eat? Have you ever watched these uh, nature shows where, where the, li- the pack of lions is just hanging out, waiting? What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the tourist sheep. They're waiting for that one sheep to decide, oh, I think I'll go over on the other side of the fence and try the green grass over there. And then they call out that one sheep and say, you know what, one sheep is no contest for a lion. What's the defense of a sheep? Two things. Stay as close as you can to the shepherd. Touch his leg if you can. And stay in the flock. Walk together. Be together. Be among us. Because the devil is looking for a lone sheep. He's bigger than us. He can take you. But if you're in the flock, you can resist him. And he will flee from you. That's what Peter's saying about being sober-minded, being watchful. See, God permits, God created an adversary in order to test our faith because it's more precious than gold. The devil works God's purpose. When he ceases to do so, he will be destroyed in the lake of fire. He's not God. He's a creature. God made Lucifer. God made the devil. And he allows him to do his evil deeds for God's glory and for our growth. How can you become a warrior without an adversary? We are being tested in our faith. And that's why Peter says, be strong in your faith. He knows that the lion attacks your confidence in the promise of God. Satan will say, did God say? Satan will say, is God good? How could God be good when you're hurting so bad? He will say that over and over and over to us. And Peter says, watch out. Be sober. Hold on to your faith. Be confident. Because after you have suffered for a while, see, that's the key. I don't want to suffer any. Suffering's hard. Suffering hurts. And I think God's not good or God's not powerful or God forgot about me when I'm going through hard times. But the truth is, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character increases our hope and our faith and our confidence in God so that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is and we will share his glory because we shared in his suffering. Not because we deserved it, Exactly the contrary, because we didn't deserve it, just like he didn't deserve it. And God is firing our confidence in his promise, even when there is no evidence that can be seen. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Do you believe that's true? Cast your cares on the Lord. Believe that he cares for you, no matter what life looks like. That's the battle we're in. Resist him, Peter says. Firm in your faith. James 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The promise is, if you resist him, firm in your faith, in what? In the promise that God is good and you can cast your anxiety on him, the devil will flee. See, he has a roar, but he doesn't have any teeth. Jesus took his teeth out. Just like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, remember? The, the, the abominable snowman. The, the lion holds no danger for those who are in Christ, in his flock. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Stay close to him and hidden in the flock. And Peter expands our view of that flock a little bit. At the end, he says, know that the... The worldwide flock of God suffers with you. Remember that you're not the only one suffering. I have a friend in jail in the Middle East somewhere. Accused of being a spy. When I sit down to thank God for the food, I think of that guy. And I think, what's he eating? How how cold is he right now? What's it like there? What can I do to help him? Lord, help him. That makes my sufferings look really small. Remember that we're part of a worldwide marching people of God 
who are known to be suffering with their cross on their shoulder like Jesus did, and that will encourage you, at least putting your sufferings in perspective. Spending time with Nepali pastors just last week, watching them strategize to plant a new house church in a new village every year. And I think we have so much, so many resources, so much time available. These guys have to farm to feed their families. And yet they're still expanding the, the, the kingdom of God into unreached places. So challenging, so humbling to be a part of this worldwide flock of God. You know, dear Sister Mary, dare not call her Pastor Mary, but I could say Shepherdess Mary, taught Susanna and me so much about fighting the enemy. We sat in her living room on many occasions, praying with people, seeing demonic activity cease through the power of prayer and the power of the word, cutting off the tentacles of the devil, the tentacles of sin and hell that had wrapped themselves around people's souls. And one of the most important things she taught us were the three open doors to the devil. And I'd like you to write these down as a strategy for your own battle against the lion, she said there are three main ways that the devil gets into someone's life. And this can happen to a Christian, not in the same way, but we can give an open door to the devil. The word is clear about that. Number one, obviously, is sin unrepented. Hanging on to your sin gives the devil access to your soul, to your heart, to your mind, and I've found even to your kids. Close the door. Repent of any known sin. Confess and repent because the lion is watching for that entry. Second, sin unforgiven. Someone else's sin against you that you do not forgive. You harden your heart. And the Bible's very clear that that leaves the devil a foothold in your life that creates over time a root of bitterness that defiles many. An open door is sin unforgiven. Release forgiveness as a preaching of the gospel. Release forgiveness as suffering undeserved in the steps of Christ. Seek out offense, even in the traffic. You, know, you guys, someone cuts you off, say, Deus te abençoe, meu irmão. Vai com Deus. Repent, forgive, and then finally, the devil's primary strategy and weapon Lies believed. Lies that you believe, that I believe, become an open door, become a stronghold, become a fortress of demonic activity in my life, in my mind, in my words, in my actions that ruin what God is doing because I am not basing what I think and what I say and what I do on the truth. I've believed a lie. There are lies that people told you when you were a child that you have clung to or that the devil keeps speaking to you. And if you allow him to say that, you will give him access to your mind, to your life in a way that he can affect the fruit that God wants to produce in your heart. What are the weapons against those things? The shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit confidence that what God says I am is what I am, not what the devil says, not what someone told me, not even what I think I am. It's what God tells me I am that I will be. I will believe it and I will walk in that truth. That's confidence in faith that stops the fiery darts of lies of the devil. And then the truth of his word, memorizing his word, cutting off those curses. I remember one night we were dealing with a young lady at at Abba, the ministry that we worked with, who had been dedicated to a demon. And I think I've told this story to you before. Her mother dedicated her in the womb to a demon in exchange for the love of the man that she wanted to fall in love with. And it worked. The man fell in love with her, moved in with her, and abused her child. And when we got her, she was 16, she was incorrigible, the state houses couldn't control her, and they called us and said, hey, we, can't, we don't know what to do with this girl, can you take her? And I got a call one night. All, all the Chia said was, she's manifesting a demon, can you come? And I knew who it was. When I got there, there were already four members of the Abba team gathered around this girl. Beautiful example of sheep in the flock gathered around the lion and believing God for victory for a, a young lady that needed to be delivered. And she was. 
over several hours. She had to finally assume that what God had said was true. She was afraid that if she gave in to the gospel, the demon that had tormented her would then kill her mother because that was the arrangement, right? I get the girl. You can have the guy. I'll get the girl. If the girl escapes, then the mother became the next victim. That was the lie that this demon was telling this young lady. And one of our workers, A.G., a lovely single missionary from the south of Brazil, opened her little Bible. I'll still remember it. It's this little devotional Bible. And she turned to Colossians chapter 2 and read verse 14. This is what it said. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. That girl took the Bible from A.G.'s hands and tore it in half. The demon was so angry. Because he knew, it knew, that we had just cut off its tentacle. The sword of the Spirit is true. It has power to do the work of God. Not always immediately, of course. God wants to stretch our faith. Keep believing that it's true. Keep it in your hand. Quote it to yourself and perhaps out loud to the demons. That's what Martin Luther did. He would yell it out. The truth is, I don't care how I feel. I don't care what the evidence is. The truth is, what God says is, this is who I am. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Keep your weapons in your hand. See, the problem is, we forget that he exists. He changes out his fiery darts for tranquilizers. Just lulls us to sleep. We think all we have to do is wait till Jesus comes and go to church on Sunday. It doesn't really matter if we look at pornography on Tuesday night. Nobody's getting hurt by this. Or if we gossip about somebody, that's, you know, nobody really knows. And the devil gets the victory over our lives because we're not sober, we're not awake. I remembered Keith Green's old song, No One Believes in Me Anymore. Remember that song? Those of you who like Keith Green, look it up. I'll send you the link this week. Here's what the lyrics say. Oh, my job keeps getting easier as time keeps slipping away. I can imitate your brightest light and make your night look just like day. I put some truth in every lie to tickle itching ears. You know, I'm drawing people just like flies because they like what they hear. I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting very simple now because no one believes in me anymore. Oh, heaven's just a state of mind my books read on your shelf. Have you heard that God is dead? I made that one up myself. They dabble in their magic spells. They get their fortunes read. You know, they heard the truth, but turned away and followed me instead. I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. You know, no one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. Everyone likes a winner. With my help, you're guaranteed to win. Hey, man, you ain't no sinner. You've got the truth within. And as your life slips by, you believe the lie that you did it on your own. But don't worry, I'll be there to help you share our dark, eternal home. At the end of his song, he has this explosion of fire and smoke. Believe you have an adversary and believe it's God's will for you to suffer the attack of that adversary so that your muscles of faith will grow. Let me tell you, nothing makes you memorize verses more than dealing with an evil spirit. After that night dealing with that girl, we all went home and opened our Bible and found Colossians 2.14. <laughs> Said, I got to memorize this, baby. It's true. It's true. We're struggling with depression, with anxiety. Some of you didn't come to church this morning because you, don't, you feel anxious, you feel depressed. How can you come to church? You can't even comb your hair. And it's because you believe the lie that God doesn't care for you or that he's not powerful enough to change your situation. And Peter's commanding you, believe it. Cast your care. Take up your sword. Wake up. Stay sober. The enemy is prowling around. He's on a leash. He's on a time limit. The time's going to run out. He exists for the purpose of God and for the glory of God in your life in defeating him through the word and the spirit. Let's finish with interpretation and application. That was all observation, by the way. Interpretation, four things. Number one, elders are shepherds. 
That's what pastor means. As we hire a full-time, long-term pastor, think of them as a shepherd, not just a public speaker, not just a motivational communicator, but a shepherd of the sheep. Do they know how to love sheep? Do they lay down their life? Are they just a hired hand looking for a job? Pastors, elders are shepherds of the sheep that God cares for. This means feeding, caring, listening, giving up what you want. Jesus said in John 10, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This is not a position in an NGO. This is the beloved flock of God for which Jesus laid down his life and he's looking for shepherds and shepherdesses to care for those sheep and give their lives for them. Number two, authority is liberated from below. What does that mean? Elders are not supposed to lord it over the sheep. They're not supposed to force people to subject. It's the sheep that are commanded to subject themselves. So when I submit to a leader... Even when I disagree, obviously to a certain point, if it goes beyond biblical bounds, then yeah, we raise our voice. We say, no, that's out of line. I empower my leaders to lead me by a subjective attitude, by a submissive spirit in the spirit of Christ, following in his footsteps, even if it causes me suffering, not because I get something out of it, but because the Bible commands that I follow Christ through quiet submission to leadership as the church sets that up and we empower leadership. Remember the centurion that, asked, that came to Jesus and said he had a sick servant and Jesus was going to his house. What did the centurion say? No, 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 I don't deserve that. And I understand how things work. Isn't that what the centurion said? He said, I'm a man under authority. I have people over me and I have people under me. What's he saying? I submit to the authority over me and they extend their authority so that I can lead those that are under me. Submit to the leaders of the church and you will have authority from the throne of Christ to do in your realm what you need to do to shepherd the sheep that God has given you. We empower those who are over us. Being subject without compulsion authorizes the elders. Number three, humility is not a fruit, it's not a gift, it's a command. And it's for all of you. Peter says very clearly, all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. <clears throat> Would you make an effort this week to do that? Husbands, do some dishes for goodness sake. Wives, stop talking so much and ask some questions that your husband likes to answer. <laughs> oh, that's going to be a good lunch conversation. <laughs> <laughs> children put on humility toward each other toward your parents clothe yourselves in Christ's humble spirit uh, at our house we talk about the grace syringe you know a syringe with a needle that goes in your arm and it really hurts but you need to take it because it's got good medicine that's getting injected into your soul it's that ache of humiliation that God sees especially when it's undeserved and if you're quiet God says, here, I love that attitude. That's just like my son. Here's some grace for your situation. You get the grace by clothing yourselves in humility. He gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. And then finally, <clears throat> the devil is real. But he can be resisted if we are in the flock, or as Peter says at the very end, in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And let me please give one more call to those who aren't. It's not about coming to church. It's not about memorizing the Bible. It's about being in Christ. And when He comes into you, you come into Him. You become part of His body. You are members of us through the Spirit, through oneness in Christ. And you can do that simply by repenting of your sin and saying, I don't have the holiness required to come to heaven. 
But I received the just, sufficient payment of the blood of Jesus on the cross for my sin. Wash me, make me clean, live in me, be my Lord. I want to be in you. And in Christ, there is peace. In Christ, there is victory over Satan, over sin, over anxiety and depression. Because we are in the one who won the victory. Come in. If you're not in yet, don't spend another day outside. God bless those of you who are going to Paulista today to draw those who are not in Christ in through the open door of his rent flesh and shed blood. We can resist him for victory. Luke 10, when the 72 came back to Jesus and gave a report, they said with joy, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know, Jesus always sent out his disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom, cast out demons, and heal the sick. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Be in Christ and fight the good fight with confidence and joy because we have the victory in him. What should we do about this? Elders, shepherd the flock, willingly, eagerly, and being an example. The Word says it's a good thing to aspire to eldership. Some of you, maybe it's being born in your heart, that you're to be elders of Calvary. That's a good thing. Bounce it off someone that that loves you, maybe first your wife. Find out if the Lord's confirming that desire. But it means, at its core, shepherding the flock of God willingly, eagerly, and by being an example of a mature follower of Christ. Followers, sheep of the flock, be subject to the elders as Christ was subject, willingly, eagerly, and being an example for others. Same way, likewise, just like Jesus, and just like the word says of the elders, be subject, make an effort, make an effort to be subject. When there's a meeting, I know you're going to miss out on something. Probably miss a World Cup game or something. Come to the meeting! That's being subject to your leaders. Whether you like it or not, whether you get something out of it or not, willingly, eagerly submitting as an example. And then finally, all of you, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand so that His grace can restore and confirm and strengthen your faith, establishing you for His glory. I want to finish telling the story of Susanna and my friend Robert Woodbury. Went to Wheaton with us became a sociologist, and wanted to do a PhD that showed the result of Protestant missionary effort. Well, he was assigned uh, an advisor who hated missions, who hated the gospel, an atheist, radical woman that he says cursed her every day, cursed him every day. Every day he came to work and his heartbeat would go up. He was stressed. He was anxious. He had to present this proposal for a PhD dissertation to a woman who thought it was absolutely more than ridiculous, it was pernicious, it was evil, because it was spreading false religion. Robert Woodbury said, Lord, you know this is what you asked me to do. And he could have ducked out and done it as a seminary project for all the Christians, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted to preach to the world that the gospel has changed the world. Well, somebody found out about this. After a year and a half of putting up with that suffering from this intellectual woman who was, he was trying to get his proposal approved, he finally got it approved and someone funded it for $30,000. And he hired 100 assistants and traced every single missionary base in the world for 100 years, the whole 19th century. And he proved his point. In almost every case, the countries where there were conversion to Christ preached on missionary basis have freer education, have more justice for women and the poor, have free press, have government structures that are representative, have health and hospitals, have even uh, uh, revolutionary political movements that other places didn't have, and it was all rooted back to missionary effort in the 19th century, and he published it in an anthropological secular journal. 
They made him publish a a hundred-page book defending his research first. You can look it up. It's called The World the Missionaries Made. Uh, Christianity Today did a, a condensed version of it. Proved his point after years of suffering quietly because he knew the, the gospel is the power of God for transformation. God wants to use you to declare his glory, to make his glory known, and it will come through suffering according to his will for a time until his glory shines out of you. We are his flock. There is peace in Christ. I want to pray over you that you will embrace that peace this morning. Would you close your eyes with me? Some of you are in the lion's mouth. You're suffering with anxiety. You've believed his lies. I want you to rise up, push him off. You're in the flock. If you've set Jesus on the throne of your heart, the word is true and it covers you. It is the sword in your hand. Right now, believe that the Lord cares for you and cast your cares on him. Throw it off. Be a sheep, not a goat. Call out for him and he will help you. If you've never come into Christ, now's the time to do that. Confess your sin. Repent of your whole life without him. Run to the open door as if it was the ark and the rain was beginning to fall. Jesus has done it. He knocks and waits for you to hear and open the door and he will come in and he will change you and make you a part of his body. Father, I pray over all of us. I pray for the elders to rise according to your will, to rise to your stature of service humbly, quietly, lovingly caring for your flock. And I pray for your flock at Calvary to be subject, willingly, eagerly, as an example to everyone else, so that we can be the flock you purchased on the cross. I pray that you would seal any decision that was made this morning for salvation or against anxiety and depression. Drive back the lion. Give us peace in you as you promise. In the name of Jesus.